so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week, while we're in D.C. for the Evangelicals for Life conference, we're featuring a panel on millennials and the pro-life movement. When we can talk about unconditional love that we receive every day by God's grace alone, and then can pour that out to someone else, that's, I think, what for anybody, not just millennials, will be impressive. You're unconditionally loving this girl in this unplanned pregnancy right now. You're going to pay for her medical care. You're going to take care of her and adopt her child. I mean, that's amazing. That's the unconditional love I think that the world needs to see. Millennials are the next generation to lead the church in cultural issues. So how they handle the pro-life movement is crucial. Brianna Stensrud, Molly Hemingway, Trillia Newbell, Allison Howard, and Andrew Walker discuss the conflicts that arise with this issue and how millennials can engage well. We hope this message equips you to join the pro-life movement. My name is Brianna Stensrud, and I am the Director of Pro-Life Initiatives at Focus on the Family, and I am joined by an all-star panel this morning, I have, or this afternoon, sorry, forgot my coffee. This is Molly Hemingway, and she is the Senior Editor of The Federalist, a longtime journalist and wonderful writer, and then I have next to her Trillia Newbell, who is the Director of Community Outreach at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Allison Howard is next to her, and she's the Director of Alliance Relations at Alliance Defending Freedom. And then Andrew Walker is going to bring up the, the male perspective here on the panel. And he's the Director of Policy Studies at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. We're going to dive right in here, and I'm going to start with Molly. Recent polls indicate that more Americans identify as pro-life than ever before. Um, according to a Gallup poll conducted last year, 55% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in all cases except for incest or rape. Fueling these numbers are millennials. 25% of millennials think abortion should be illegal in every circumstance. Um, what do you think is behind these numbers for millennials? Yeah, it is really interesting, the numbers. And there was a poll that came out this week that the Knights of Columbus Commission from the Marist Institute that showed something like 80% of people are in favor of at least some restriction on abortion. Part of the problem when we talk about numbers is that we we just put everybody into the camp of pro-life or pro-choice, mm-hmm. and um, it hides the fact that there's actually a lot of agreement in this country um, on protection of life in the womb at some level, and uh, the position of the pro-choice movement, of course, would be no restriction on abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. So there's a lot to be hopeful for uh, among pro-lifers. And what's really, really interesting about it is far and away the most pro-life generation would be millennials. This is a different trend than you see with other groups, um, but pro-life, millennials tend to be even more pro-life than, than like, you know, old, older uh, generations. Previous generations, yeah. And um, 
I think there are many things driving it. And one of the things that, you know, you can't anticipate something like this happening, but just the simple technology, of course. Every millennial has a picture of themselves as they looked when they were in utero. Uh, there's also the technological achievements in terms of being able to um, take a child in the womb, operate on that child, maybe even remove her from the womb, put her back in the womb, these types of uh, life-saving procedures that can uh, be worked on children that are just, you know, 20 weeks or so in the womb. This completely changes the nature of the debate from where it was when I was young, where people with an absolute straight face would talk about clumps of cells and you were supposed to take it like that was a real thing. Um, just the pictures that you see change it. And of course, also the other thing that started in my generation, but continues for millennials is that everybody who is alive becomes a survivor of uh, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. And that is a very different thing when you realize that you could not be here for, for this, you know, simple reason that, that abortion uh, can be done on a child, throughout, you know, in the country at any point in pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. And Andrew, we um, know that there can be a lot of argument and disagreement even the, in the pro-life movement itself. Now, if we go back to the origins, beginnings of the movement, what should millennials really focus on to capitalize on the movement and actually grow the movement forward in unity? Yeah. So I think... You know, the, the past generation of the pro-life movement was really successful in kind of gaining momentum because they formed coalitions with like-minded organizations. Um, they had public policy think tanks form that were able to do kind of the hard philosophical and intellectual work of the pro-life movement. Um, they had academics who were doing writing, uh, and they had strong a strong entrepreneurial mindset to the pro-life movement. And honestly, for the new generation, um, the, the, the older generation was so good that there's not a lot more I feel like we need to do other than build off that momentum. Um, and what I would say we need to begin doing is having a new generation of leaders emerge, which we're, we're, ha we're seeing that happen. Molly Hemingway, Allison Howard, these are young pro-life um, spokespeople for the new generation. And so that's happening. We need um, older generation of leaders to, to make space for these leaders, which I think is happening. Um, we need to continue to have this entrepreneurial spirit that is trying to forge ahead new brands, new slogans, new ways of messaging uh, the pro-life movement. And, you know, I was taken by your comment, or the first question. One of the reasons I think we're so pro-life as a millennial generation is we are a very narrative generation. We really, really buy into stories. Right. And what's been so successful, the pro-life movement has not treated abortion as an abstract propositional discussion. They've tied it to people's stories. They've tied it to empathy. And so I'm I'm mindful of, uh, you know, this last Sunday in church was Sanctity of Life Sunday. Mm -hmm. And we had a young couple in our church that uh, their, their unborn child was diagnosed with spina bifida. And so they had surgery in utero to help fix her spine. And it was an incredible story. And they broadcast the story mm -hmm. on the screen this Sunday at church. And I was in tears. Um, and I think, you know, it's that type of entrepreneurial understanding of, of, of who we are as a narrative generation that's really – um, going to move the ball forward for another generation. And lastly, I'd say is to keep understanding that we do more um, together than apart. And the more we build institutions together, uh, the more we'll succeed as a pro-life generation. I just wanted to add one point to that too, yeah. which is one thing that's very interesting about the, about millennials is that 
For those who um, identify as pro-life, 51% of them say that abortion is a very important topic for them. For people who are pro-choice and millennial, that number plummets, that percentage plummets to like 20%. And this is a huge problem in the pro-choice movement in general. Debbie Wasserman Schultz just got in trouble for stating the obvious, which is that millennial pro-choicers are not terribly um, committed to the cause. And this is something that they, you could not you could not emphasize the difference more with the pro-life movement that is fueled so much by young people. And we will see this, you know, this week and tomorrow yeah. as we, mm-hmm. as we go through the snow with nothing but young people who are able to handle <laughs> the, snow. the bitter cold. Yeah. Right. And speaking of young people, Allison, you are a founding member of Young Women for America, which is an on-campus organization. What do you feel are the strategies that really engage young people together? And do you feel like the pro-life issue is a huge issue for your peers? Well, I think absolutely. The college campus component is really unique in the sense that you're seeing a generation that's uniquely interested in justice. Uh, And that can mean different things. But uh, they don't like the idea that something's being held from them or that they're not being told the full story. And so we're hugely interconnected and hugely confident once we find out what's, what those facts are that we can move forward in truth. And so um, these sorts of things that we've talked about, technology advancing for 40 sonograms, um, even just the interconnectedness of Facebook and being able to share videos to to know that there's a plethora of allied groups that work together to do things winsomely and promote healing and redemption. You know, I think as a young woman myself, it's the pro-life side that's being really supportive of young women that are in uh, unconventional situations. I don't see that happening uh, for pro- the pro-abortion side. I see women that and men that are in this room saying, you can do it. You know, we can do this together. It's just it's, like Charmaine Yost said this morning about right. how at a woman's lowest point, you have the abortion clinic saying... No, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what right. you're saying. Right, and in, it's a really neat note that more pro-life legislation has been passed in the states in the last four years than in the last decade. So to me, that says at a grassroots level, there are people getting involved and doing something. And now at a national level, you have every presidential candidate also mentioning life. You have Marco Rubio announcing just this week that he has a pro-life advisory board. Great thing. You have Carly Fiorina uh, doing an interview in Glamour with Essie Cup, talking about defunding Planned Parenthood, redirecting those sources to other better community health clinics. I think it's a really good thing. And I think you're, you're seeing uh, a lot of, as Andrew said, the work of so many that started this. We just have to thank you as young young people, as millennials. The only reason that we get to be brave is because you guys laid that groundwork in a time that was a lot harder to do it with a lot more hostility. Now you have Quakers for Life, uh, you have Atheists for Life, uh, Harley-Davidson Bikers for Life, as Molly pointed out. It's great. It's a diverse movement. No specific race, background, ethnicity. We're all in this together. Absolutely. And we also get criticized, as we've just mentioned, is that we are uh, pro-baby, but we're not pro-women. And Trillia, you had edited a book, Women on Life, and you talk about several issues pertaining to the pro-life movement from the women's perspective. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of a comprehensive pro-life ethic and a worldview? Absolutely. Well, God created life, right? In Genesis, we start out with Genesis 1, that he's created us in the image of God, and then we know that he has knit each baby in the mother's room. And so it is important to God. Life is important to God and it's all of life. And so women on life addresses anything from the single mother 
to the elderly. And we want to have a holistic view of life that it's important that we're caring for the orphan and the widow. And how do we do that? How do we practically do that? And I think, if I'm right, millennials like to take our faith and put it into action, that it's not just words on a paper or on a screen, that they can see that we are actually engaged in the topic, but that we're, we're moving somewhere. And so Women on Life, that this book that I got to edit and with these wonderful authors who contributed to it, it helps equip the church, not just to read another book or to have another resource, but to take that faith and to put it into action. Right. And, you know, my role at Focus on the Family is we work with over 2,000 pregnancy resource centers across the country. And there's no better testimony, in my opinion, of the work of the pregnancy resource centers across the country. Right. If you have any criticism of the pro-life movement saying that we are not pro-woman, please Mm -hmm. look at the the free, quality, compassionate care that these pregnancy resource centers, these pregnancy medical clinics offer to women across the country daily. They are on the front lines in those very desperate situations and coming alongside women to encourage them that you can do this and that there's a life that's just as valuable as your own in the womb. And if I can add to that, some people don't even know about them. Mm -hmm. They don't know, they don't know that they're available to them. And we try to put in um, different resources in the book so that people could be more aware. Okay, this is where you can go to find these awesome resources that people, where women can Mm -hmm. find their help in time of need, as well as in our local churches. Absolutely. You know, just from a communication standpoint, I think one thing that's really interesting is a direction that the pro-choice movement has taken in recent years and really in recent weeks of saying that abortion is necessary for women to be fully functioning. And there was that friend of the court brief where all these people said, I couldn't do what I wanted to do without abortion. I think they think this is a good message. And it's it's just a terrifically disastrous message from a public relations standpoint of telling women that in order to be like a full woman, you have to be just like a man. man. You have to be not pregnant, just like a man. You'll never be successful. And you'll never be successful if you are, you know, a woman who does not use chemicals or violence to empty your womb. And this is not what being pro-woman is about at all. Uh, Women, (laughs) we are full members of society as women, not as people who can imitate men. Um, And it's not a pro-woman message to not support a woman as life giver, as well as all of uh, the other wonderful things we do. Well, and we know that the world is not a better place because of abortion. Abortion has created a culture in which it is almost expected that you should abort if you're pregnant at an inopportune time. And it's created a culture in which we would rather terminate a pregnancy than accommodate these women with their needs as mothers. And so we know that abortion is not better. It has not made our culture and our society better. So speaking on that issue of disagreeing so much with people about their perspective and what they think is healthy and what they think is right. How do you, I know you've written on this, how do you advise us to speak with those who uh, we disagree with and that we we would do so with compassion? We wouldn't demonize those that we disagree with, but that we would give them dignity as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough issue and one I struggle with, as do we all, I'm sure. Um, we're dealing with such important topics and there's such urgency to it that mm-hmm. we can uh, fail to be charitable with, with others. Um, I think that the pro-life movement has grown beautifully in this regard 
in, in recent decades of genuinely and truly understanding that abortion has many victims mm -hmm. and caring for each of those victims. And that is not just the unborn child whose life is ended in the womb. It is the mother who is yes. told that she must um, commit violence on herself in order to be valued in society. That is the relationships that are damaged by the pressure to abort. It includes people working in abortion clinics are also victims right. of this industry they are desensitized. They are, they are, they're put, you know, a lot of times people who work in clinics are not very well educated. They're given opportunities to have jobs that pay well. They are in a tough position themselves with maybe mouths to feed and whatnot. And they find themselves in this situation of being involved in horrendous work. They're also victims. And I think that the pro-life movement has, has learned this over time kind of as more and more people leave abortion clinics to join the movement, you start realizing, oh, this has, you know, there are so many people who are hurt by it. So that is a wonderful, um, that is a wonderful thing to look to how the pro-life movement has improved the conversation. At the same time, you know, of course, every movement has people who are intemperate. And one thing that is important to me is I wish that our media did a better job of facilitating conversations between people who differ. And that is an area that surprisingly still needs just as improvement now as it did 20 years ago when I first started noticing how bad the media were at really covering this topic fairly for people who are pro-life. And I don't know exactly why that is. I think newsrooms tend to be full of people who are naturally biased toward a pro-choice position. But whether or not you're in the media and you're pro-choice or not, um, we have journalistic responsibilities to accurately convey different arguments and to tell the stories of this um, this movement that has been going on for decades now is the largest civil rights movement and has people from all over the country. I wish our media would do a better job of accurately describing the views of pro-lifers. And I think that would help us all have better conversations. Yeah. And Allison, if you could just, I just want to applause to that. <laughs> I think it would be great. And just if you could speak a little bit about that, about even giving people who we disagree with dignity as well. If we're advocating for life, we should also be advocating for the life that is disagreeing with us because that person is also made in the image of God. And right. so we have this, even with the media, we have this war on women rhetoric. Can you, ex can you maybe tell us what would you, what do you think that we can do as a movement to really push back on that war on women rhetoric? Sure. Well, we're in a really nice position because, uh, the war on women, when you hear that or think about that, I've been kind of thinking of it as a war on words. Make sure that those who you're talking about and that are tweeting at you understand the words that they're using. Because we know that those who consider themselves pro-choice, when we, you ask them, what does that mean? That generally has some common sense regulations in it. Hmm. Well, not all the way through pregnancy. Okay. Then at what, at what point do we draw the line? Well, I'm not sure. Okay. Let me just inform you. This is what's happening at 12 weeks. A heart's beating at this many weeks, you know, informing people. I think that's the best way we have truth on our side. There's no need to get angry and mean. Um, so those words that are used, pro-choice, pro-life, help people understand what that means when they're, when they believe that that's their, their thought process. And also, you know, the pro-abortion side has continued to advocate for safe, legal, and rare abortions. And that's just what we hear. The, uh, the Democrats have abortion on demand at, at any time during pregnancy in their platform. Okay. Well, safe, legal, and rare. Senator Langford made this point just yesterday. Why rare? If it's not a moral issue, why do you want it to be rare? If it's simply just a tissue, why not rare? We don't go and protest when warts are removed, right? We're, we wouldn't march for that. 
something about that rare aspect, I love that he pointed out there's something there. And so I think that puts us on a ground to talk to them, not argue, but talk to them. So I think I want to note too, if, if you guys walk away with one thing is just thank you for being the church. Thank you for being the church to people and young women and, and men. And I think men are a big part of this. I just want to empower you to keep speaking. Uh, you are defenders of life. You are God ordained to be protectors of innocent. And that's what's happening here. So thank you. And don't let anyone tell you, you can't, you don't have a place. Um, and if you have someone in your life, that's a young person that's speaking out on this, or asking questions, please encourage that and encourage them because it's not easy. We would all tell you up here that today, probably as we're speaking, we're getting tweets that are going to attack something, most likely not our logic or our thoughts, probably something else, um, our faith, our looks, uh, the way we said something. So please, we are meant to lift each other up and affirm us uh, as a body of Christ. So continue to do that for the young people in your lives. I think it'll be a really good thing and uh, really start those relationships. I think of I think of War Room. Did you see War Room? Um, and how the older woman took the younger woman in and showed her how to do marriage well. I think that the pro-life movement has done that for us. So let's continue to do that. Show us how to do this well. Yeah. And I think it, you want to say yeah, something I, on I'm, that, Andrew. I'm struck by your comments about, both you and Molly's comments about how um, abortion clinic workers are victims in this as well. And what I think this reminds us of is that in this debate, um, conflict is inevitable. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a question of what type of conflict are we going to engage in? Is it the world's mm-hmm. conflict or is it the, the biblical definition of conflict? And I'm always, I always come back to this phrase. Um, in my first semester at seminary, I was listening in chapel to a sermon that Dr. Moore gave, of all people. And he used a phrase I'll never forget. He said, rage against the serpent, not against his prey. Mm-hmm. Rage against the yes. serpent, not against his prey. <laughs> and that, that, that was um, a disarming comment because it made me realize that um, yes, this conflict is going to happen, but the people that we're doing intellectual, ideological battle with, um, they're held captive to a spirit of darkness. Um, and so um, empowering and liberation uh, in this debate means not only saving um, the unborn life, but also empowering people to see change in their own lives and to see light and truth as well. Yeah, and see that truth even in the midst of the lies. As we were talking about safe uh, legal and rare. I, I don't know what's rare about 57 million. Mm-hmm. Wow. That number. What is rare about 57 million? That is an epidemic. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that, you know, millennials ask uh, at us at Focus all the time is, well, how, what can I do to be a voice for life? What can I do to engage in this way? And I've got the next new idea and I've got a passion for this. Um, and I guess one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give young millennials who want to get engaged is start getting involved with what's already happening. We have such great leaders in this movement who have done foundational, wonderful work. And a lot of the times when I ask new young millennials, uh, so what has been your experience in the pro-life movement? There's kind of this silence. Um, what, what pregnancy resource center have you volunteered at? Or have you, or have you engaged at a, a hospice home in your community or not, you know, anything in that comprehensive pro-life perspective? And there's very little experience that's been happening, but they have lots of ideas. So one of the ways I think that we can encourage young millennials is to say, keep that drive, keep that passion and go and utilize that and give that to a local 
pro-life cause in your community and grow that and help enhance what they're already doing. If you don't like what technology they're using, if you don't like the rhetoric they're using, go in and be a fresh drink of water and humbly serve and gain that experience. And so even in that um, conversation with millennials, you'll see just kind of the step back of, oh, I might really need to engage in those areas. And one of the ways that we've seen millennials really engage kind of switching gears here is with um, talking about the Planned Parenthood videos. We had David here this morning, which was wonderful to have him. Truly, I just want to ask you, you know, these Planned Parenthood videos have really pulled back the veil on the evil that is happening yes. right in our own communities. And I would just love to know from your perspective, what do you think those videos have done to really change the conversation and the landscape sure. in our communities, in our culture? Yeah, I think you kind of touched on this, but it, it put reality and life to it. Um, we can't unsee it. Hmm. We've seen, we know the truth. Hmm. And so I think for millennials and for anyone, you, we've seen it. We, we, we know that this is what is really behind the scenes going on. Hmm. And so the, the thing that um, I think is sad, if I might, is that, and we see this all the time, we get kind of excited about something for several weeks or a month or a day. And then it's dead. Hmm. I feel like that's happened with this. We get excited. We get it. And then it's dead. And I know that many of you on this panel are really um, involved in the pro-life movement, making waves, encouraging millennials. But if you look at the broader, the broader audience, um, there aren't as many people who are on the front lines. And so I think what we see is we see this excitement, okay, and then it dies down. So what my prayer is, is that we would continue in that vein, that we would continue with um, being actionable and pursuing this topic beyond just, okay, some videos came out, but that it would, it would just, that we would continue to engage in it and that it wouldn't be just a few faces in this movement. Yeah. I think sometimes millennials think if they send a tweet, they've done their yeah. job. Yes. I do want to just say really quickly though, that I do think that there is significant long-term impact from the videos. Absolutely. It's absolutely true that the absolutely. media, to understate wildly, <laughs> the media did not do a terribly good job of covering those videos. But one of the things that's very interesting about our current media climate is that you don't need the mainstream media quite as much to get the message out. And so millions upon millions of people were forced to deal with what was in those videos, whether they retain the same level of excitement. I'm not sure it would be healthy sure. to retain yeah. the same <laughs> level of excitement over time. But this this is, like you said, it's something you can't unsee, even for those of us who've cared about the pro-life cause for a long time, hadn't really thought through some of what we learned from those videos. But when you look at things like there is now a select committee in the House investigating this that has right. subpoena power to actually get into these things. Planned Parenthood, for some reason, decided to sue David Daleiden, which I assume, I, I don't know exactly why they're exposing themselves, but when you sue someone, that gives the person who's being sued the opportunity to get into your records a little bit. So this is, there will be big pieces of information and consequences coming out of this. And some some people didn't really investigate. Other people will investigate. That's huge and important. And I think this you know, it was a very big moment for the country to be forced to deal with what's going on. Okay. <laughs> I, I am not sure I know what's going to happen with the, with the presidential race. One thing that's interesting to me is certain very loud candidates notwithstanding. Um, I am. What else could you be referring to? I, you know, um, I am really 
intrigued by how the Republican candidates and even to some extent the Democratic candidates are handling the abortion topic differently. And you saw this happen even early in last year. Um, you know, it's very common if you're pro-life to be asked, well, what about incest or something? And the way that the candidates were not cowering in response to this, but pointing out the problem with the way the media interrogate every last niche and, um, of pro-life thought, but never think to ask a pro-choice candidate who's, you know, consistently pro-choice whether she really thinks that you should be able to kill a child just because she's a girl. You know, that's not a question you hear the media ask. So these Republican candidates have actually been telling the media, you need to do a better job. That is that is just so different than what we've seen in presidential elections in the past. Um, so I think that what's interesting is that the Democratic frontrunner is very much in bed with Planned Parenthood. That's an interesting thing to see. And it was also interesting to see Bernie Sanders recently talk about, like, of course, they're together. They're the establishment. So the Democratic Party is dealing with um, an anti-establishment uprising. The Republican Party is, too. Um, and I don't think many people would say that Donald Trump will be an effective pro-life messenger, although his late conversion to the cause might, you know, is something to celebrate, certainly, as with all people's conversion. But um, that is something that I think people have every reason in the pro-life movement to be very deeply concerned about. Um, what would happen if he were? Yeah, Andrew. Did you yeah, and I think we should we should pause for a second and say if if the pro life movement is at a at a point where we have momentum, we shouldn't sacrifice momentum just for expediency and for the loudest mouth on the campaign trail. Uh, Donald Trump in a 1999 interview with Matt uh, Russert um, acknowledged that he was even opposed to restrictions on partial birth abortion. Um, that's a radical. Position. So as we're evaluating as pro-life individuals what type of candidates we have to be looking towards, we need ones who are principled, um, not just ones who are going to kind of fill in that dot or bubble uh, just to get our votes. So we need to be very mindful of that. That's yeah. Yeah. Allison, I, I just want to talk a little bit about um, pro-justice causes because in the pro-life movement and even with millennials, millennials seem to get very excited about pro-justice causes. Human trafficking seems to be um, the hot topic uh, to get involved with. Millions of dollars have been donated through Christian conferences and youth events, which is all a very, very good thing. But one thing in the pro-life movement is we want to help people see that pro-justice causes are pro-life causes and that they're all in the continuum. So We've seen such popularity with the human trafficking issue. How do we help engage and motivate that kind of outpouring of support and activism for the pro-life movement? Right. Well, it's a, it's a great question because I think it's a, it's the idea that we all want to belong to something bigger than ourselves. And so for people of faith, we belong to the body of Christ. That's wonderful. For people that don't necessarily have a relationship with Christ, they still want to belong to something. And I think that's why the pro-life movement draws so many different types of folks because they see passion here and they see uh, acceptance here and inclusion. And, you know, the fact that we would say anyone that's listening, that if you decide today that that's, you're wrong and there's life there, that you come in with welcome arms here, that we're the ones that say, we know women, we work with women and men every day that regret their abortion. And that's, who we hang out with and we continue to move forward in love being pro-life is pro-love. That's why I think it appeals to so many people. It's the most compassionate choice period. So they tried to kind of use that on us. Like this is the real compassionate choice. When you see that sonogram and when you know you can Google and what's going on, I think as, as girlfriends, you know, we, 
tend to always know there's one person you go to if something's going on and they kind of know more than you and you can get a lot of information. Just be that for your church. I mean, I was, um, I've done a couple of speaking engagements at, at uh, the Catholic church does this well. I've met some women who have taken up the mantle of, I am like the pro-life liaison at my church and my priest will know everything about what the March for Life, Evangelicals for Life, if we're signing up, she's, she's the, the person. And so I, I thought that that was a great model and something that if you feel encouraged or that, that might be something that God's calling you to do, no matter how old you are, you can make sure that you, your friends and family know uh, about these great events. So I think to go back to the question being pro-justice, ultimately we are on the side of love and support and it's those wonderful women, the heroes and men that start pro-life pregnancy centers that I love pointing out when some people say, you only care about the baby, you don't care about the whole life. And it's just simply not true. true. Uh, we're funding thousands of federally qualified health centers that do real things to help women instead of just uh, using our tax dollars to end a life. Right. And I, I want to speak to that eclectic nature of the pro-life movement. Uh, Trillia, when we talk about the millennial generation, we've got a very eclectic group of young folks that are charged up and want to do something and they are motivated. It's interesting to me, you know, the millennial generation is arguably the most sexually active generation in our time. And yet, uh, you know, the dating scene has gone out the window. Hookups are uh, casual and commonplace. And yet millennials are also coined as the most pro-life generation. So how do those two identities um, really mix or do they? And how does that impact the pro-life movement as a whole? Sure. Well, I think um, we've got to understand that life begins with sex. So we've got to talk about these things without feeling taboo. I think often, um, I think, Molly, you hit on this. We are going to see a lot of damage when this is all done and said and done. Hurt women, hurt men, um, uh, hurt people who are working in abortion clinics. And this is um, part of it is, is that they have, um, taken God's, um, ordained order, law, whatever you want to call it, and they've gone the opposite direction. And it is painful. So we want to educate, accept, as you were talking about, um, encourage, encourage protection, encourage, um, that you are, um, protected under God, that is. And so we want to help people understand sexuality and what the Bible says and that it's something that um, isn't taboo to talk about. So I think that's one of the things is that people feel shame and guilt. And so they don't want to confess and talk rightly and openly about sexuality. And we want to be churches in particular because that's my heart. My heart is for the local church, churches where People can talk, talk about sexuality and talk about their struggles and what they are doing so that they can receive help and mercy in their time of need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the church always seems to be the place that everyone says the church should be doing this. My pastor should be doing this. And yet your pastor is hearing that from about 25 other people as well. And so, you know we just get thrown in with the plethora of things that the pastor should be doing and the yeah. church should be doing. Um, Andrew, what would you advise if you're trying to really lift up the cause of pro-life in your church and with your pastor? How do you um, explain that it's not just this thing on the side, that it's really about the entire culture and the doctrine of the church and the teaching of the church? How would you advise people engage in that way? At the local church level? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's um, a good question. 
I, I would begin, I, I love what Trillia said in the very beginning, that um, God is a God of life. We need to begin with that very presupposition. And that needs to be kind of the overriding ethic throughout all um, sectors of the church's life. So that means that, uh, you know, one of the things that's overlooked today uh, in, in local church life is uh, the, the, the place of the pastor in moral formation. So that the, the place of the pastor is there to offer um, uh, declarations of truth. He's there to offer um, habits of formation that are week in and week out, teaching his people what it means to be the people of God. I, I don't want to make it, I don't want to reduce it to just saying preaching every single Sunday, you know, that uh, God is a God of life. But in some sense, it really is that simple because we have to ask ourselves, what are the simple presuppositions of Christianity? Um, God is a God of life. He loves life. He made all of us his image bearers. Um, and we cannot um, reduce that in any portion of what it means to be involved in the local in the life of the local church. And if I could just add on, and he's a God of forgiveness. Yes. yes. He, he's all about yes. forgiveness. Yes. And so that love and that coupling with forgiveness is, is unconditional love, right? The world, to go back to your question, Julia, is the world doesn't get that love, what love is. It's right. lust is really what's happening. So when we can talk about unconditional love that we receive every day by God's grace alone and then can pour that out to someone else, that's, I think, what for anybody, not just millennials, will be impressive. You're unconditionally loving this girl in this unplanned pregnancy right now. You're going to pay for her medical care you're going to take care of her and adopt her child mm. i mean that's amazing yeah. that's the unconditional love i think that the world needs to see between a man and a woman in marriage and then also in childbearing and yeah. in adoption it's a really good opportunity to reflect that and that's the, the whole life pro-life mm -hmm. ethic that's mm -hmm. what we're after you know one thing i think is interesting is uh i get the feeling that a lot of evangelicals counted on the culture to help raise children or to help impart moral teachings and they did this for decades because there was, in some sense, some alignment between what the culture was teaching and what the church might teach. And if you ever thought that was a, you know, if you ever thought there was that alignment, there is no confusion at this point about uh, whether or not there is alignment, which puts us in the interesting position of having to speak much more forthrightly. I went to a wedding in Minnesota in September. The, the sermon began marriage is about sex. And I wanted to like stand up and cheer like, this is great. You know, like we're, we're getting, we got a really great sermon about the, the uh, centrality of like, what, what does marriage mean? And what does intimacy mean? What does forgiveness mean? It was very, and this is the type of thing that I think a lot of people avoided talking about in their churches because it was just sort of assumed that you would know what we were talking about. Well, now as words mean anything, and there's very little agreement about, um, about, morality, the church is in a very important position of speaking clearly. And the nice thing is that the Christian church has had a very um, systematic and beautiful explanation for how uh, how relationships form and how they should last and, and what the beauty of the marital relationship is and all other relationships that we have. And so uh, this is just a great time for people, whether they are pastors or not, to just clearly talk about what the church teaches. It's a great message that the world is desperate to hear right now.
Yeah. And I think one of the things in the pro-life movement is we want to grow our perspective and our rhetoric, which is why I think we're all here and why this conference, Evangelicals for Life, is such a needed and important milestone for the evangelical community because we want to talk about, we want to move from the unborn to the woman, but also to the orphan and to the widow and then also to caring about those who are dying from preventable diseases. We want to care about the elderly, lonely women in our community. You know, 80% of the elderly population that lives in an independent care facility never get one visit. Mm. Oh. 80%. I mean, that's huge. And talk about trying to give dignity and value at the end of life. So as we talk about being um, comprehensive in our worldview and our life view of being pro-life, we need to remember there's that whole gamut of life in between. It's not just the unborn and it's not just the woman, but all of that then circles into orphans and those who are waiting in foster care. We have a hundred thousand children who are waiting for a forever family in foster care right now. Um, that's in this country alone, not to mention the millions worldwide. So if you take that whole gamut, one of the things, this is just a question for everyone on the panel as we end with this, is how could you um, advise or what would you encourage people if they want to get involved in being an example of caring about that comprehensive yeah. pro-life ethic in their church, their community, their family, their school, their university? What would you take any one of those, if you'd like, and just give an idea of what, how you might engage in those different facets in those areas of life to be a voice for life. Sure. I can start. Go I, um, I've volunteered both at a, um, a center where, um, I guess you call it a elderly, I can't think of the name of the center. Anyways, it doesn't matter. I'm, and also at a pregnancy crisis center and it is not that hard and it doesn't take that much time. And I think what hinders a lot of people from doing things is that they we're busy and we think that it's going to take a lot of time. So if you have an hour, I think we can give an hour um, to sitting with an older, beautiful woman and talking to her who isn't getting visitors or, right. yeah. And so I think that's one way that you can just even tomorrow think, okay, where my schedule It's really simple. Where can I actually volunteer? Mm-hmm. Where can I volunteer at a pregnancy crisis center? You don't have to do much. You can just sit with the women mm-hmm. and talk with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hand out simple. diapers on the emergency fund that comes yeah. in. Um, I love the quote that says you only love as well as you're willing to be inconvenienced. Mm, I think really in the millennial generation, we want everything fast. We want everything immediate, everything quick. And if it's not tailored for us and if our latte is not exactly right, then we're going to complain about it. We're going to tweet about it. Mm. Your life is meant to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. And that is part of being a servant. So you really, truly only love as well as you're willing to be inconvenienced. And so, Andrew, would you continue with that conversation? Um, A lot of this is, uh, within the home especially, is is an attitude and perspective shift about um, what we do with aging parents. Mm -hmm. I think this, if we're talking about... um, a whole ethic of life of, of that all of life is dignified. Um, that means old life as well, elderly life. Um, I am really burdened uh, for elderly parents That's that cool. are, um, for lack of a better phrase, kind of shipped off to uh, a, a retirement home. <laughs> and, and my father-in-law, I think, has um, really impressed upon me this idea that to the degree that you can and they're, they're medically capable to live with you. Uh, I think it's a really appropriate thing to, as parents age, to invite them to live in your house with you. 
um, what better way to almost return the favor that, you know, they cared for you as you were growing up. And it's your obligation and duty to care for them as they're in their last few years. Um, I think, again, if, if it's horribly inconvenient uh, as to come back to the theme that you hit upon, it's probably costly. Um, but I think it's a great witness for the church to show to the watching world that we're willing to be inconvenienced by welcoming I mean, and it's our parents, for goodness sake. I mean, it's... it's or maybe it's not either. Or, or maybe it's a, lo- a widow in your Very local church. You know, my, that's a great my brother and my sister and I all were fighting over who would get my mom <laughs> in a similar situation. And then she told us she didn't want to live with any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Mom. No, it's cool. But, um, but the thing that it did, this all came about as part of a conversation we had with our parents about just end-of-life decisions in general. Mm-hmm. And people find themselves thinking about end-of-life care at the worst possible moment. And if you uh, if you want to think through what your last days will be like and how much care you want and what you don't want, you have to have those conversations years in advance and make sure the family's on board. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Allison, what would you say about engaging to be a voice for life in your com- local community from that comprehensive perspective? Well, I think... You guys are doing it. I mean, you're being inconvenienced to walk in the snow tomorrow. It's going to um, be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun. But I think the fact that you're here says that this is really unique to your heart. And something I've been trying to share with my sisters, I have two younger sisters. We have two foster care brothers uh, we adopted, and we took in our grandmom, so she who has dementia. Award. So it's like the uh-huh. Huxtables in my house. <laughs> um, it's just growing and growing. But um, it's really neat to see the foster care boys, right, interact with my grandmom, who needs a lot of care right now. And take selfies with her. and um, But I just think that's a beautiful image. Again, the family is important, but um, take the opportunity when it comes. It's all you can do to talk about why you're here this weekend. You know, I was a little bit convicted. I was catching a cab and the guy's like, so I see there's protesters and I'm like, here we go. All right. It's not a, well, let's talk about what this is. And so um, just don't shy away from those chances to lovingly explain to people why you took the weekend and went to the bullseye of the storm, you know, I think those are the kind of conversations and appointments that God divines for us to, to share our heart on this. So. Excellent. Well, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, one of the things that uh, we have a focus on the family is we've just got a list of ways that you can engage. And one of, you know, one of those things is volunteering at your local pregnancy resource center, whether that is dropping off frequent donations there, checking in, what do you need? Lots of pregnancy resource centers are understaffed and underfunded. Um, also wrapping around families who have adopted. You've got many families in the church that have been called, and we've been told it's our Christian duty to take care of orphans and widows. And we bring in these children to our homes, and we love them, and it's hard. Children with trauma past and history, it's incredibly hard. And so if the church could wrap around those who have adopted, we could see so much more life coming out of these families who have taken that call and done that. Also, yes, and you can call my parents anytime (laughs) if you want to start doing that today. If you could cook, clean, babysit, or drive a car, you can help any family who has brought in an orphan child into their home. It's just practical things. Um, also, you can get involved with volunteering or donating financially to those causes that are abroad um, in those underserved and underdeveloped countries with, that deal with a lot with the preventable diseases that are going around. 
Um, that's one way to get involved in that avenue. And then we just talked about engaging with your local elderly centers and going in and seeing them and having a meal. And that, that takes an hour. If you're going to go out to dinner one night, why don't you just go and bring dinner to someone um, and bring a smile to their face as well? So there's lots of practical ways that you can get involved and be a voice for life at every stage of life. So I want to thank all of our panelists here for being with us today and helping us understand that a little bit more. Thank you for your time. If you're interested about getting more involved in the pro-life movement, you can join us for this week's Evangelicals for Life conference through our live stream. Evangelicals for Life is a conference that seeks to equip believers to be a voice for life. For more information, visit evangelicals.life. And join us next week as we learn about having courage to stand for our Christian convictions.